Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zoza. Africa, amuka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Onelin Zinzi, Amanda Machaka and Figi Lilingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, ECOWAS leaders to visit Gambia in an effort to persuade the country's long-time ruler to hand over power. And ANC warns against fights about who will succeed President Jacob Zuma. In sports news, a 37-member FIFA council to decide whether to increase the tournament from the current 32 teams. First up, the news with Onelin Sinti. Thank you, Lulu. Now looking at your news update, the president of Nigeria, Sierra Leone, in Liberia, will visit Gambian President Yajime on Wednesday in a second attempt to press him to hand over power. An ECOWAS delegation led by Liberian President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf visited Gambia in December but failed to persuade him to step down. The West African bloc has since said it would take all necessary steps to uphold the result of an election and had put troops on standby. Jamey initially conceded defeat in the poll but a week later filed a petition with the Supreme Court due to what he claims were irregularities in the vote count. Thousands of Kenyan doctors who have been on strike for over a month risked being fired if they did not return to work by Wednesday. Chairperson of the country's Council of Governors, Peter Monya, said the doctors would be issued with dismissal letters and their vacant positions ad- advertised if they do not take the offer by the government and resume work. The medics on Friday rejected a 40% pay rise offer from the government, demanding the full implementation of a 2013 collective budget agreement which assured them of a 300% raise and other improved conditions. South Africa's ruling ANC has rated its Women's League for endorsing Kosa Zanajamene Zuma as its presidential candidate. Party spokesperson Zizu Godwa has labelled the move as premature, divisive and defiance of the National Executive Committee. He was reacting to an ANC Women's League statement that they were in favour of Lamini Zuma, the outgoing African Union Commission chairperson, to take over from President Jacob Zuma in December. Kosato has in turn endorsed Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa. Godwa elaborates. We are working very hard around the clock to make sure that we build unity of the ANC. We can't allow structures of the ANC to continue to divide the ANC. Even if they do so, those whom they nominate themselves they must be principal enough to say, as a Cyril Ramaphosa, not in my name. Because if you, if you accept a nomination later, but it's not possible that you must do so prematurely in a manner that undermines. That's what's up in the unity in the African National Congress. 
Thousands of refugees entering Uganda on a daily basis from three neighboring countries are not getting the support they need due to a lack of funding. This according to the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR. The East African country received more than a half a million new refugees from South Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Burundi last year. UNHCR's Charles Yesley. During the course of 2016, Uganda received more than half a million new refugees from three main emergencies, from South Sudan, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and from Burundi. And that's on top of the half a million refugees that were already residing in the country. And currently we continue to have thousands of new arrivals every day being from South Sudan. Uh, Uganda has continued to adopt a generous and hospitable approach to refugees. And lastly, health officials in Angola say they have recorded the country's first two cases of the Zika virus. A French tourist and a resident in the capital, Luanda, left Angola after being diagnosed with Zika two months ago. Head of the Department of Hygiene, Eusebia Manuel, says the second case concerns an Angolan patient who lives in Luanda and was diagnosed last week, adding that the patient is still hospitalized. The World Health Organization in November announced that the Zika virus no longer poses a global public health emergency after an outbreak centered on Brazil erupted in 2015. Channel Africa News, I am on Elensinsi. Thank you, Onel. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A team of ECOWAS leaders is to visit the Gambia on Wednesday for talks in the continuing efforts to get President Yaya Jameh to hand over power to the winner of the December 1st, 2016 election in his country. Led by the regional body's chief negotiator, President Muhammadu Buhari of Nigeria, the team is expected to include President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf of Liberia, the immediate past president of Ghana, John Mahama, and the president of ECOWAS Commission, Nigeria's Collins Atohengbe. Perhaps the biggest surprise of the Gambian election was President Jamin's acceptance of the result as released by the country's electoral body and not the reversal of his earlier position which has now presented a cause for concern by ECOWAS leaders who are battling to have him honor his earlier stance and to respect Gambian constitution which he has sworn to uphold and respect. Analyzing the political development in the Gambian, a legal practitioner and political analyst Mr. Chukwemeka Eze says there has been evidence that Yaya Jame would tow the path he has chosen a few days after his defeat in a popular poll going by his past actions. Uh, what many people don't know is that Yaya Jame has been ruling Gambia like a military man. His version of democracy has been that unacceptable to the international community. This is a man that introduced Sharia and changed the name of the country to Islamic uh, Republic of Gambia. He removed his country from being a member of the Commonwealth. The road has started long ago. In fact, many journalists have been sent to the prison before, and uh, there have been instances of uh, closure of uh, communication houses. So what you have seen now is a consolidation of power. Uh, he was surprised. In fact, he was shocked 
that he lost that election. As far as I'm concerned, Yahya Jameh is not a man of peace, but it is good for the West African countries to make the last attempt to avoid blame. Speaking in the same vein, an expert on political development of West Africa, Alester Wilcox, says the efforts being made now by ECOWAS leaders through peace negotiation is to give Jame a soft landing or an easy way out of troubled waters. Uh, Gambia is rather uh, a sad development. It, it, it's not a power that should flex its muscle in this kind of direction. For a man like Jame, who has been so blessed by God and by nature to have ruled this country for 22 years, to want to take the path of suicide, to get out of office, I think it's not unfortunate. I just believe that um, the actions being taken by President uh, uh, Muhammad Buhari is to give him a soft landing. Not for want of uh, action that could have just forced him out of office. And I think the ECOWAS leaders have been really, really patient. Little wonder, therefore, that ECOWAS chief negotiator on the Gambian crisis, Nigeria's President Mohamedou Buhari, conveyed a leaders' meeting to make yet another attempt to get Jame to see reasons and relinquish power without causing avoidable collateral damage. Nigeria's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Geoffrey Onyama, told journalists after the Abuja meeting on Monday that Mohamedou Buhari in company of other West African leaders will be visiting Gambia on Wednesday for talks with Yaya Jame. In view of this, the meeting agreed a certain number of the presidents will visit again in two days' time President Jame in the Gambia. And that will comprise the mediator, President Buhari, with the president of Liberia and hopefully the president of Sierra Leone and the co-relator, the former president of Ghana, as well as the uh, president of the ECOWAS Commission, the uh, special representative of the United Nations, and also a representative of the African Union. What is not certain, however, is whether Yaya Jame will give peace a chance or stick to his guns and call the bluff of ECOWAS leaders and the people's ability to pull the carpet from under his feet. As Ellen Johnson Selif, pres Liberia's president, puts it, the regional leaders will not allow room for political breach in West Africa. We call on the people of the Gambia to follow the example of Ghana and put the interests of the nation above all personal interests. ECOWAS stands by the people of the Gambia and will exercise every effort to sustain peace and democracy. We stand with the people of Gambia and want to assure them of our unwavering adherence to the principles of democracy in our entire region. January 19 is only nine days away. That is when Yaya Jami is expected to quit political office peacefully or drive his political train to the waters where the former Ivorian leaders Laurent Gbagbo swam and drowned. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosa Atohengwe for Channel Africa. A consensus-based model through which a single candidate emerges from South Africa's ruling party's ANC leadership is the only way to attain durable unity for the government governing party. That's according to governance specialists at the University of South Africa, Professor Dumsani Lope. The ANC will elect its new leader in December. 
And already it looks like it will be a two-horse race between the party's Deputy President Sil Ramaphosa and the outgoing Chairperson of the African Union Commission, Dr. Ngosa Zanatlamini Zuma. RSABC political correspondent in Mokobo investigates whether the ANC can afford another vicious leadership battle. The ANC's 52nd National Congress almost 10 years ago is undoubtedly the most unforgettable and most vicious leadership battle since the unbanning. The 2007 elective conference sharply divided the ANC, and since then unity has been elusive for the governing party. And with just 10 months before the next elective conference, President Jacob Zuma has encouraged members to prepare thoroughly for that gathering. We therefore expect that ANC members will firstly conclude in-depth discussions about the principles that qualify comrades for leadership. There must be agreement before comrades begin discussions about the names of specific leaders. We also urge that the power of ANC branches must not be undermined by slates and lobby groups. That will kill the organization. So far, the ANC Women's League has thrown its weight behind Dr. Ngosa Sanatlamene Zuma as its preferred candidate. It is supported by the Youth League and MK Military Veterans Association. Alliance partner Kosato, on the other hand, wants Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa to lead the ANC. And Governance Specialist at UNISA to Misanet Lopez is again a repeat of the 2007 vicious leadership battle is inevitable. What the leadership of the ANC needs to do is to prioritize the organizational well-being, not the individual. And this is why the current approach to putting up a president for the ANC is counterproductive because it focuses on the individual. What ideally it should be, it should focus on the strategic outcome of what the ANC seeks to achieve. But the current approach of starting with the individual names, it re-emphasizes these factions that the ANC is decrying because it's being personality-driven. And because of that, the focus on the individual cripples the organization. He says unity in the ANC will remain a distant dream for as long as party leaders fail to manage the succession drive, insisting that agreeing on a single candidate for the ANC presidency will save the party from implosion. The strategic outcome that the ANC should focus on is to have a powerful, united, cohesive organization. One possible response to this is to have one candidate going into the elective conference in December 2017. But this means that... First and foremost, the contending forces within the ANC advancing various candidates for presidencies. They should first and foremost understand and accept that all of them need a united ANC. And therefore, it is in their best interest to work towards a united ANC. And one of the ways that that can happen is to manage the leadership and succession drive such that the movement can possibly go into the elective conference with one candidate. Dumisane Lopez says all contending forces in the ANC must not allow leadership and succession drive to be a divisive process. He also says even veterans of the ANC are not helping the situation as they are not immune to these contending forces. They are also not immune from personal or group advancement of their own particular 
interest within the ANC to show that they are also part of the challenge. Some of them will say that Zuma must step down, whilst others saying that you know, this is not the agenda of the ANC veterans. So they also don't speak with one voice. But one thing that unites them for now is their realization that everybody in the ANC needs this vehicle called the ANC. Now, if the rest of the leadership of the ANC can join the veterans in that particular understanding and commitment, I think that will be the greatest contribution that the veterans would have made to the sustenance of the ANC. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Call Tanjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi, informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The race to succeed South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has begun in earnest with the ANC Women's League. This past weekend, officially endorsing outgoing AU chairperson Dr. Ngosa Zanatlamini Zuma as its candidate. The ANC Women's League's announcement was made on the eve of the ANC's 105th birthday celebration at Orlando Stadium, where President Jacob Zuma called on members to refrain from mentioning names in the leadership battle. The ANC is set to elect a successor for Zuma at its national conference in December this year, and its pick is likely to be the next president of a country. For a perspective on this, Zikona Miso spoke to Daniel Silk, director at the Political Futures Consultancy. Yeah, look, the gloves are off, and the gloves really were off already at the end of last year when the Trade Union Federation, Kasatu, announced their intended backing of the Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa so what we saw over the weekend was another major formation, the ANC Women's League, uh, declare their support, not surprisingly, for uh, Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma. Uh, look, this has gone against what the party bosses have asked for. They've asked, in fact, for the contestation uh, to be uh, put on the back burner until the end of the year when the actual elective conference takes place. What we now have, of course, are two heavyweight candidates, both starting to receive support from important uh, components of the ANC alliance. And this simply means that we are going to be uh, drawn into a very protracted 11-month leadership battle for succession within the ANC, which, of course, has its own uh, risks attached.
Now let's talk about um, the significance of um, uh, the uh, Women's League's endorsement of Ngozi Zanadlamini Zuma at this time. Look, the question is to what degree, to how much power does the Women's League have within the ANC. Remember, I think that we must look at the ANC as a, a collective of any number of different uh, subsections and formations. Of course, there's the Women's League, there's the Youth League, there's the Communist Party, there's the Trade Unions. Uh, there are various powerful regional entities uh, within the ANC, like the KwaZulu-Natal branch, like the Gauteng branch as well, the Premier League. All of these different factions uh, are competing for power and have access uh, to anoint the next successor to Jacob Zuma. Uh, so I think the Women's League is just one of these various uh, bodies, and any future president is going to have to cobble together a coalition of a variety of different uh, subsections of the ANC, the Women's League being one important component. Mm. Let's talk a bit about uh, that factionalism that um, uh, we've seen uh, descending upon um, the ruling party. Um, and now, we know that uh, Kasatu had earlier endorsed uh, uh, Cyril Wamaposa as their candidate, um, and now we've seen the Women's League with Nkosas and Adlamini Zuma. Are we likely to see friction, you know, taking uh, center stage at this point? Well, I think we will see friction over the course of this year. This is a very heated uh, succession battle. It comes hot on the heel over the whole of last year, which was dominated really by intense factionism within the ANC, not necessarily about uh, uh, leadership candidates, but more about access to power and resources and the issues of state capture. All of those issues, I think, divided the ANC. This year, we're going to see divisions based more upon which camp is uh, competing for the presidency. Uh, but yes, I think we're going to see this uh, factionism uh, and uh, succession competition uh, really become the key feature of our politics over the next year. The question is, can the ANC manage this uh, in a way in which it doesn't upset the ordinary running of the party? Uh, if it is not managed properly, if it creates deep divisions within the ANC, we can well see further problems for Jacob Zuma and really for delivery within South Africa as the governing party just becomes so obsessed with its own leadership battle. So how this is really managed, if it can be managed, because I think uh, uh, sort of the genie is out of the bottle when it comes to all of these competing leadership mm-hmm. candidates, and there may be more leadership candidates that haven't announced their uh, intention to stand mm-hmm. yet. Mm. Um, this is going to be the real question for uh, the ruling party in the next few months. Mm. Now, Daniel, just before we let you go, I mean, the ANC um, was uh, dealt a huge blow um, at the local government elections where they were shocked about um, how the vote had turned out. Now, with all of this factionalism and uh, the friction that's taking place and, you know, um, uh, all the activity that's taking place within the party, um, in addition to some of the um, lack of confidence from people on the ground, what does this mean for the future of the party moving forward in your view? Look, the ANC is betting that a future leader, let us say a future leader is announced in December of this year, uh, that a future leader will have sufficient time over the 2018 and early 2019 period to win back the confidence certainly of the majority of voters who felt alienated from the ANC and didn't even vote for the ANC in the last local government elections. So I think the ANC is sort of willing to Uh, tread water this year as they battle through the succession race, but their hope is that, look, the next successor uh, to Jacob Zuma will be able to reboot and kickstart the party. Um, I think the ANC is taking a gamble here because uh, this succession and division that that will run for most of this year really takes away another year from the potential for the ANC to try and reboot themselves with a new leader. 
Uh, and as such, the pressure will be on any new leader by this time mm-hmm. next year, by January mm-hmm. 2018, uh, to try and reinvigorate the party with only a year to go until the critical national elections in 2019. It's a very tough, uncertain period for the ANC, and of course it also makes it a tough and uncertain period for South Africa in the process. That was Daniel Silk, Director at the Political Futures Consultancy in South Africa, speaking to Zikonamiso. It's 8.23 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Elections and infrastructure development will dominate the news in Kenya this year. President Uhuru Kenyatta, whose administration is battling voter discontent over runaway corruption, will be seeking his second and final term. Also expected to be on the ballot is former Prime Minister and opposition leader Rayla Odinga. Opinion polls have put Kenyatta in the lead, but there are fears that last-minute amendments to the country's electoral laws may lead to violence in the East African country, as the opposition is already alleging plans to rig the polls. On the economic scene, Kenya will begin exporting oil in March, ahead of neighbor Uganda. Sarah Kimani takes a look at Kenya in 2017. Kenya will hold its general elections in August this year. The presidential ballot will be a hotly contested battle between incumbent President Uhuru Kenyatta Sasa mwaka wa 2017 who is seeking a second and final term against the opposition. The opposition is currently working on a more united front led by former Prime Minister Raila Odinga of the Coalition for Reforms and Democracy, CORD. Last year, Cod held protests to demand the ouster of the Electoral Commission, claiming it could not be trusted to hold a free and fair election. The opposition is once again preparing to take to the streets to demand that the president does not sign into law hurried amendments to the electoral law that will see the Electoral Commission revert to a manual backup to the electronic voting system. The opposition claims this is a ploy by the Kenyatta administration to rig the polls. Both Kenyatta and Odinga have pledged a violent free poll. In 2007, at least 1,500 people were killed following disputes over polled results. Kenya, like the rest of the region, is feeling the effects of climate change. Failure of last year's March to April long rains and the October to December short rains has left the country's granaries empty and low water levels in the East African nation's dams. The capital Nairobi is expected to begin water rationing as a result, and the Kenya Red Cross Society has indicated that nearly 2 million people are faced with starvation. In March, Kenya will begin its ambitious plan to export oil. Although plans to build an oil pipeline on hold until August next year, the country will transport at least 2,000 barrels of oil a day from Trukana in the north of Kenya to an oil refinery in the port city of Mombasa. British company Talo Oil first struck the black gold in Kenya in 2012. Still on the economic front, the country's most expensive infrastructure project, the Chinese-financed Standard Gauge Railway Line, will begin operations in June this year. The first phase of the railway will run from Nairobi to Mombasa. The line will eventually connect Kenya to Uganda, the Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan and Rwanda.
It is expected to reduce congestion on the roads as well as ease the movement of goods and passengers in the East African region. The African Development Bank has prospected an overall GDP growth of 6.4% for Kenya in 2016 bored by returns from infrastructure development. Sarah Kimani, Nairobi, Kenya. South Africa's Parliament's ad hoc committee probing the SABC affairs and the board's fitness to hold office says former board chairpersons Ben Gubani and Ellen Shabalala will be the last witnesses to testify in the inquiry. The ad hoc committee was expected to resume today, Tuesday the 10th of January. However, it will only resume on Friday when the two former board chairpersons will take the stand. Our SABC parliamentary correspondent Mercedes Bissent tells us more. In the interest of fairness, and uh, you would have uh, picked up in today's proceedings that the witnesses, uh, to a large extent, made reference to Dr. Ngobane and Ms. Chabalala, who were the former chairpersons of the SABC board. And uh, I would love to suggest that uh, the committee considers the two being added to the list of witnesses. Thank you, that was Parliament's legal advisor and evidence leader Ntutu Zelo Vanara during the second day of the inquiry on the 8th of December last year, explaining why Ngubane and Chabalala had to be invited to testify. Former non-executive board members Roni Lubisi, Vusi Mavuso and former CEOs Lula Mamokobo and Phil Mulefe were among those who made reference to Ngubane and Chabalala during their testimonies. Mulefe told the Edo committee how he allegedly refused to approve a 500,000 rand salary increment for Saudi Motsweneng as acting COO in 2011 at the instruction of Ben Ngubani. In late November, Mr. Motsweneng approached me asking for a salary increment. I refused and I also pointed out to him that his salary, salary increment was in any case a board decision. Subsequently, Dr. Ngubane called me to his SABC office in early December 2011. When I came into his office, I found Mr. Mutsuning also present. The chairman then offered me a prepared letter recommending a 500,000 salary increment for Mr. Mutsuning. Dr. Ngubane asked me to sign the letter in order for him to approve the recommendation. I refused to sign the letter. One of the former non-executive board members, Roni Lubisi, told the Edo committee that he voted against the appointment of Mutsueneng as permanent COO when Chabalala was still the chairperson of the board. During the inquiry, Lubisi claimed that they received a notice of a meeting that was called in the evening where Chabalala allegedly read a letter from Mutsueneng's lawyers. She just read a letter. I have never seen that letter. It was said to be from, I, I don't know whether it's from the lawyers of the, Mr. Mutsueneng saying that he has been acting for too long and then mentioning some achievements there. He has achieved A, B, C, D and then now he needed to be appointed. If he's appointed, there are consequences of the labor relation act or whatever legislation because he has been acting for a long time and um, it should be noted that there was no advert for this position at that point. 
All these allegations made against Chabalala and Gubane are expected to be responded to when they appear before the Edo Committee on Friday. The two are expected to be the last witnesses to testify in the inquiry. Edo Committee Chairperson Vincent Smith says while there were requests from more witnesses who want to testify, the committee has decided that Ngubani and Chabalala will be the final witnesses. Because simply we have a deadline to meet and we think that our processes so far would have given us sufficient information to be able to prepare a report. But yes, these are the final two witnesses as things stand now. Smith says the reason why the inquiry will only resume this Friday is because Ngubani made the request through his lawyer to get more time to prepare for the hearing. Smith says the Edo Committee's first draft report is expected to be concluded by the end of next week before it can be sent to the executive board of the SABC for comment. He explains what the entire process will be after the testimonies of Chabalala and Ngubani. The following week, the ad hoc committee will then get busy with preparing its report on proceedings thus far, and we are hoping to have that sorted out by the end of the week of the 20th, whereafter we will send a report to the affected parties for their comments and give them about two weeks uh, to comment on, if they want to, on the contents of our report. And uh, the second week of February, we will then uh, consider their responses if we receive any responses from them and prepare a final report that will be submitted to Parliament. A National Assembly resolution in November last year expects the Edo Committee to report back to the Assembly by the 28th of February. Meanwhile, the Communications Committee, which is responsible for oversight of the SABC board, is expected to be back in Parliament in two weeks' time. Communications Committee Chairperson Humphrey Matagwana says one of the first things they would do will be to look for and recommend the appointment of an interim board. That report by Mercedes Percent. Our headlines up next with Onelin Sinti. The president of Nigeria, Sierra Leone, and Liberia to visit Gambian President Yajume on Wednesday in a second attempt to press him to hand over power. Thousands of Kenyan doctors who have been on strike for over a month risk being fired if they do not return to work by Wednesday. And thousands of refugees entering Uganda on a daily basis from three neighboring countries not getting the support they need. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelinsinsi. Thank you, Onele. All primary, secondary, high schools and universities in the English-speaking regions of Cameroon have kept their doors closed with all students, teachers and lecturers absent as the second term of school year in Cameroon kicks off today. The strike in protest of what the teachers call the overbearing influence of the French language in the bilingual country has kept the children out of school for the third month now. Mugi Kinzaga reports from Bamenda, northwest Cameroon. Out of the 4,000 students expected at government bilingual high school Bamenda, northwest region of Cameroon, only 17-year-old Urban Ashi showed up on the one of the second term of Cameroon's school year. 
He says he is afraid the teachers' strike action will compromise their education. They should give us the room to go back to school and be studying while the government and the teachers sit down in the table and discuss how the problems can be solved. Because staying and waiting that the problems should be solved before we go back to school will jeopardize our future. The teachers called the strike to protest what they call the overbearing influence of the French language in the bilingual country. English speakers constitute 20% of Cameroon's population and the constitution says English and French inherited from colonial masters should be equally important. But most official documents are only in the French language and administrators and teachers without the least understanding of the English language are sent to work in the English-speaking regions. Parent Ndip Victor says the government should listen to the teachers and solve their problems before he sends his four children to school. I'm pleading, since the head of state is aware of all the problems, let the right people go and meet the head of state so that these problems should be solved, so that the year 2017 should go smoothly. So I'm just pleading the government, help us so that our children, Cameroonians of tomorrow, should go back to school so that this country can be stabilized and peaceful. They have asked for certain problems that should be solved and let all those problems be solved and I think we'll be in peace and our children will go back to school. But Bernard Okalia Bilai, governor of the southwest region, has instead issued a warning to teachers should they continue to stay out of classes. He says they should not be allowed to earn a salary for work not done. We are informed that there are threats going on, but education is a fundamental right for the children. This is names of uh, teachers who fail to attend classes during the last term. If the same names come back to this office, first, they will not have their salary for the month of January. In response to the teachers' grievances, the government of Cameroon has ordered the recruitment of 1,000 bilingual teachers and transferred out of the English-speaking regions teachers who do not understand the English language. The teachers have asked for the liberation of all youths arrested during the period of the strike for refusing the singing of Cameroon's national anthem in the English-speaking regions, describing it as a foreign song. They also hoisted what they call their own national flag. In his message to Cameroonians last December 31, Cameroon's president, Paul Bia, said he was open for negotiations with the protesters, but warned that he will never accept any attempts to destabilize what he calls Cameroon's hard-earned national unity. When the minister closes the school, there's always a little bit of opening to say that if the proprietor is able to regularize the situation, then the school will be open. So it is possible that between the time that the minister closes the school and the time that the schools really start functioning effectively, some of these proprietors might have corrected the situation. And that moment, the minister will say, okay, you can go ahead. But not all schools can do that. Hundreds of thousands are stranded following the measure, but it is not the first time Cameroon is sealing schools for operating in total illegality 
or without some of their necessary authorization documents. In 2013, 750 nursery, primary, secondary, and high schools were sealed, and their owners asked to provide water, toilets, and playgrounds. A majority of them, according to the Teachers' Trade Union of Cameroon TAC, simply neglected the instructions and continued functioning with the protection of corrupt education officials who collect bribes from proprietors of such schools. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. The young man whose mother was killed in a stampede at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa whilst in the late application queue has told of his trauma five years on. The incident not only sparked change in the registration process at major universities, but it also highlighted the scramble for space at the country's tertiary institutions. The SABC's Nomsam Luli reports. It was chaotic because lines were all starting from all directions. And as time went by, people started jumping over. The management of the university was controlling numbers on the inside. And the death then occurred when there was a stampede and the person died on the inside of the university. These are some of the eyewitness accounts of the chaotic scenes at the University of Johannesburg's Bunting campus in Auckland Park exactly five years ago today. Shortly before 7.30 a.m., a crowd of about 8,000 people rushed through the gates of the university campus. A professional nurse, Gloria Seguena, was killed in the stampede while she was queuing to secure a spot for her son, Kositile, at the institution. She took her last breath in her son's arms. SABC News visited the Sukwena family in Krugersdorp. We were greeted by Kositile and his younger brother, Musima Nekhape. A large portrait of their mother, Gloria, adorns the wall of the passage leading into the living room. Kositile says the death of his mother has left a big void in his life. Following her death, he was accepted at UJ to pursue his studies in biomedical technology, but he says he slumped into depression and only lasted two years at the institution. I felt most of the time I was depressed, to be honest. Um, it was a dark place for me those two years. I felt like there was a lot of pressure for me to do well there, but to be honest, I felt too much pain to be able to cope around the place where, you know, where my life The tragedy that befell the Sigwena family forced changes in the registration process at the University of Johannesburg and other popular institutions. UJ spokesperson Kamini Reddy says the following changes were effected following the incident. To restrict or limit the number of people that are coming through to the campus, what we do have is an online application process. We have online registration We have a Mobi site where students can, through their their telephonic devices, actually access uh, our website and check. It's not totally distant. We do have people on site in our call center as well as on our website, and we have a chat line. The Minister of Higher Education, Blaine Zimande, announced that a central university system would be implemented for first-time university applications. He said the CAS system would help matriculants looking for placements as well as those not accepted by the initial choice of university and looking for other options. The department says last year alone, the system successfully placed 40% of more than 18,000 registered applicants. 
However, despite these interventions, the number of matriculants qualifying for bachelor's studies keeps growing, but there aren't enough spaces at the country's 27 universities to accommodate them. The country's university system has room for 150,000 first-year students, and a total of 151,830 matriculants have obtained a bachelor's pass. Education specialist Mary Metcalf says building more universities is not that simple. To establish a new university is a very complicated process because it's not only about establishing teaching program, but it's also about establishing the research program that will sustain the intellectual work that drives the teaching. So the two new universities are finding their feet. That has been one intervention of government in terms of establishing a growth. But the major growth in student numbers is in the existing universities. And it is a more efficient way of um, achieving growth because you have established infrastructure, you have established academic programs and research programs. The problem um, with the growth is a subsidy basis that supports that growth. And in fact, government subsidy to universities has declined over the years. Metcalf says South Africa has other options. The TVET colleges offer occupation-specific vocational education. And then the sectoral education and training authorities also provide learnerships which are linked to an accredited training. We have one of the biggest universities in the world that offers distance education and UNISA is accessible to a person wherever they live. Like many young South Africans, Getting an education is still top priority for 24-year-old Khosizile. After leaving UJ, he took a break and then resumed his studies at a private institution in Midrand where he's doing his second year in industrial psychology. He says he's always been intrigued by human behavior, but he also hopes this field of study will help him make sense of his loss and enable him to help others. He also says completing his studies is a gift he wants to give to his late mother. I'm Nom Samdluli in Johannesburg. It's 8.45 and our economic update up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. South Africa's Trade and Industry Department has refuted suggestions that it's not doing enough to protect the local poultry industry. Instead, it says it's working with local poultry producers to address problems resulting from chickens imported from the European Union. It was responding to a plea that trade union FAO made for government to tighten regulations on imported chickens in a bid to save jobs. The department's Deputy Director General Kolelwa Mlumbi Peter explains. We have been working very closely with the industry to ensure that there is a level of protection that is provided. We have increased the duty on all that uh, to 82%, which is the maximum uh, allowed duty in terms of our commitments in the World Trade Organization. The one that um, the industry is mostly complaining about is the bone-in chicken portions. Uh, The duty has been increased uh, to 37%. 
Major chicken producers have announced steps to begin retrenching more than 3,500 workers. This as they struggle under heavy competition from cheaply imported chickens. The Kenyan economy is expected to grow by between 5.4 and 5.7% in 2017, supported by stability in the macroeconomic environment, which continues to be challenged by a weak shilling and declining credit to the private sector. Analysts at invest, investment firm Saitin also say the government will be under no pressure to borrow domestically, especially in the second half of the year, with equities expected to remain flat. Tunisia is desperately looking for orange lovers after a bumper harvest of 550,000 tons of the fruit, half of which could be destroyed if there are no buyers. According to GIF, an association of citrus fruit growers, over the past five years, farmers reached a ceiling of 400,000 tons, and this year's harvest of 550,000 tons is huge. The Tunisian Union of Agriculture and Fishery recently warned that half of it could be destroyed if there are no buyers with only 10% of the harvest expected to be exported. And Citigroup stands to get less of a profit boost than other big U.S. banks uh, from lower corporate tax rates expected from the new government in Washington. A number of bank stock analysts have worked through broad tax proposals by Republicans and President-elect Donald Trump and estimate that a new tax law could increase Citigroup earnings per share only half as much as some rivals. At the same time, Citigroup may have to slash $4 billion or more of the value of an unusually large income tax asset that the bank holds as a result of losses it suffered during the financial crisis of 2007 to 2009. In our financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 13.60 to the South African rent, a 10.93 to the Botswana Pula, and a 10.60 to the Zambian Kwacha. It's at 0.75 to the British pound and at 0.90 to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,186 and platinum at $975 per ounce. And the price of print crude oil is at $55.13 a barrel. That's the latest business news. Thank you, Amanda. Up next, our sports update with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we're starting off with football news. Former France and Chelsea captain Marseille Desailly says potential hosts of future World Cups will not be put off by the increased costs associated with an expanded tournament. Desailly was speaking in Zurich before FIFA are expected to announce an expansion to the figurehead tournament. A 37-member FIFA council, which makes strategic decisions for soccer's governing body, will today decide whether to increase the tournament from the current 32 teams to either 40 or 48, starting in 2026. Desai cost fears are unfounded and declare that soccer is loved by people across the world. You find the money for the World Cup, nation, country, continent who like and love and to have the, the World Cup in their country so they will create infrastructure to, to, to make it uh, happen. 
Uh, I believe that after Russia, who is going to be good, I hope the Qatar World Cup uh, 2022 will be an amazing World Cup, especially we'll have all the tournaments in one city with all the stadium, uh, transport and everything, logistic will be uh, perfect, I'm sure. So this is not a problem. Never talk about money. Money is not a problem in football. It's growing. Football entertaining everyone. The broadcast wants to buy the TV right. The stadium are full. People go crazy. The Chinese are coming. The Indians are inside the system uh, soon. So we are not scared about that. And former Manchester United striker Dwight York, who is also in Zurich to promote FIFA's event, is more skeptical. Although York, who hails from the tiny soccer nation of Trinidad and Tobago, admitted the expanded tournament would benefit smaller nations, he stressed concerns that the quality of games could decrease with more nations competing. Where everyone wants piece of the, the, the pie, and, and it's great to see, but at the same time, we've got to make sure and safeguard that football is the same quality that is aspired that everyone loves to see when the World Cup comes around. The association representing Europe's most powerful clubs already struggling to nest players through long domestic seasons last month wrote to Infantino to say that politics and commerce should not be the exclusive priority in football. But even if the Europeans oppose the expansion, Infantino believes they will be in a minority. And final preparations are underway in Gabon's capital, Libreville, as the country prepares to host the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations. With only a week to go before the tournament kicks off on Saturday, authorities are putting the finishing touches to the four stadiums due to host the tournament. This is the second time that Gabon is hosting the tournament, having co-hosted in 2012 with Equatorial Guinea. Libya were originally scheduled to host this tournament's until Africa Cup of Nations gov- governing body, rather, CAF, decided in August 2014 that the situation in Libya had made it impossible for it to go ahead there. And the key midfielder, Sofiane Bofal, is forced to pull out of Morocco squad for the Africa Cup of Nations because of injury. Joining influential playmaker Yunis Belhanda and midfielder Nodin Amrabat. Southampton star Bofal had been at the team's training camp in the United Arab Emirates where Morocco were preparing for a friendly match against Finland. Here is a reporter from one of the popular sports websites in Morocco. He outlines the impact of these injuries. In fact, it's a big problem for our coach, Herzegonad, which uh, after losing our, our best players like Belhenda, Kanan, Bofal and Amrabat, in fact, the, the boxing day games was was a nightmare for for Morocco as we lost two important players. I don't think we can have a quality players like like Bufal or Amrabat. It will be a big uh, problem for our coach and our national team. And Cricket South Africa's board CSA will weigh up appointing a director of cricket and establishing a seventh domestic franchise following recommendations made by panels that reviewed the national teams and local cricket. The board held a special meeting with the national team review panel last week to hear their recommendations and among the key points made by the panel included the appointment of a director of cricket to oversee the performance of the Protea team and that the convener of selectors become a permanent position with defined responsibility for selection as well as talent identification. Other recommendations made by that panel included talent retention, ensuring that the SAA team and the High Performance Center are better able to enhance the Proteas, improving the standard of coaching 
and getting former national stars more involved in sharing their ideas and experiences with young stars. The domestic review involved various players, coaches and local administrators and recommended the establishment of a seventh franchise, which CSA's board will discuss at a meeting later this month. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa ECOWAS leaders to visit Gambia in an effort to persuade the country's long-term ruler to hand over power. And ANC warns against fights about who will succeed President Jacob Zuma. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Ronald Piri, technical producer Adrian Kenny and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277 Taking us to the top of the hour is P-Square with a track titled Chop My Money. It's the remix, yeah, the remix, yeah. So fly. Akon, B Square, Mr. Maybe, Convict Music. First of all, you're the type of woman that stays on my mind. Walk down the street, every guy wanna jump on your behind. It's your seduction that makes sure that we stay in line. Sexual corruption, cause I'll kill anyone for your time. Supposed to live like family, eh? Hey, I know the lie. There's nothing stopping me. She the feel my swag and I get money. I'd try my best to be somebody, cause I'm living life. She's scared to make me higher, higher. I feel this baby. You know, go believe this girl I die, die. If you see this baby, tell I'm saying she must drop my money.
love me get for you, not Jackie Chan. Some assault and stunt for you, you know I 